All right. Well, good morning again and welcome. I want to invite you to turn in your worship guides to page three for the reading of Scripture. And I want to make a special plea this morning that uh, you might uh, work especially hard at listening to this reading. I say that because this is a passage that uh, has been very familiar to me, but I found as I approached it that uh, I had a hard time actually believing it and actually taking it in. So I want to encourage you to just listen very uh, carefully and very closely as I read from this, the book that we love. Hear now these words. The Lord says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, I come in, we come to this time and we sit under these words, and Lord, I recognize uh, that as we come this morning that there is no doubt in my mind that we come from all sorts of different places. Lord, some of us come here and our lives are full. Uh, we, are, we feel good. Uh, things are going well, and yet others of us, no doubt, come in here And Lord, we feel so deeply broken, uh, some of us even beyond repair. Lord, some of us, uh, it's to the point where uh, we might even use the word despair. Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here and uh, we have listened very intently to these words because we believe they are the words to give life. And yet, no doubt, others of us are here and we're not really sure why we're here. Uh, These are strange words. We're not sure if they'll help us at all, whether if they'll give life to the things uh, that lack them, that lack life in our life. And Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here uh, with an abundance or in uh, the depths of despair, whether we come here believing in you or being overwhelmed with doubts about you, I pray that you would give us grace to see and in the way that matters the most that we all come ultimately the same. We all come with an overwhelming and unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And I pray that you would open our eyes and show us how you have done this in the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. 
Well, amen and good morning and welcome. We are in actually our last sermon series on this uh, topic that we're calling Lavished, Exploring the Depths of God's Grace. And I chose this sermon series because I believed that we as a church needed to become reacquainted with the depth with which God loves us, right? Or perhaps you're here and you need to become acquainted with the depth of which God loves his people. Maybe that's you here for the first time. And I have to tell you that there's no, in my uh, analysis of scripture, there's no passage that more shockingly brings this out than this passage. I have to tell you that as I was reflecting on uh, verse 17, which will be the focus of our time together, I found myself uh, quite honestly struggling to even comprehend what is being said in this passage. And I wonder, I wonder if any of you would be willing to volunteer this information. Um, when's the last time you were so happy with someone in your life that you just started belting it out? I'm so happy with you! You know, <laughs> when's the last time you did that? I tried it once with this girl. It did not go well. Um, she, <laughs> she is now happily married to someone else. <laughs> so, so I assume. Um, so how many of you, when's the last time, come on, I don't usually let you stay private, but not this morning, hands raised, not even our professional musicians have done this, maybe, well, I would like to now call you out, I would like to charge you with lying, many of you, okay, because I've seen it, I've seen you do this, or at least a variation of this, my favorite experience as a pastor thing that I enjoy probably the most in my uh, opportunity to serve you, actually just happened with these folks, is to visit you after you've welcomed a child into this world, and especially when it's your first child, and especially if we have been praying for God to give you that child, right? It happens uh, quite a bit here. And the reason is because welcoming a, a first child into the world, and, and especially so, uh, when you've struggled with uh, becoming pregnant and you've prayed a long time, when uh, I see you and I see uh, how you're responding to this little person, uh, actually, there is quite often singing. In fact, some of us uh, who are in our 40s, even though it doesn't relate, we sing this Guns N' Roses song, Sweet Child of Mine as we uh, welcome our kids into this world. That's why I played it during the break. It's not actually about kids, but we sing it anyway. And, um, you know, I want you to think about this for a second. It's really remarkable, but when you welcome a child into this world, particularly your first child, particularly if you've been praying for a child, what's happening there, right? Well, if you're the mom, this child has basically just beaten the snot out of your body in order to be born, okay? The next thing is, you realize that you are about to experience a profound insomnia for an undetermined period of time, okay? Uh, you then realize that your financial outlook is about to change drastically. In fact, I just read this statistic from last year, changes you know, with inflation, that raising a child for 17 years takes somewhere for most people at least, somewhere between $174,000 and $233,000, okay, over 17 years, 
right? So if you have four kids, like I do, and if you go to the higher number, 233, I mean, you're getting, you know, you're getting up there close to a million dollars, right, to raise these kids. And yet, when you hold that child, many of you do exactly what is described in this passage, don't you? Right? I, I know you do. I've, I've seen it happen, right? The baby is not happy, right? The baby is, is unhappy to be in this new place and is screaming and is wailing. And what do you do? You bring that child close. You attempt to quiet the child with what? With an attempt to communicate the depth of love you have for her. And maybe you'll even start singing, right? And maybe you'll even start singing Guns N' Roses. If you haven't tried it, my recommendation works especially well, right? But each of my kids had a song, right? And, and honestly, to some extent, it was born out of desperation because, you know, you need to get that kid to sleep, right? And so I've seen it happen, and it occurred to me that that's really what's being described here in verse 17, isn't it? It says, the Lord is in your midst, the mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, right? That the Lord's emotion that God's emotion that he's feeling can best be compared to that scenario I described, right? You're praying for a child, you're praying for a child, you're praying for a child, and then you meet this person and your heart is filled with an emotion that I think at least tries to capture what is being described in here. Your world is just filled with raw joy no matter how much your body is aching, no matter how much sleep you've lost and you're singing over this child, and you're quieting her with your love, right? It's the closest I can do to compare what I think is being said here. And what Zephaniah is trying to communicate to his audience here is that this is the reality of what God feels towards the people being described in this passage, okay? All right, I want you to take that in for a minute. This is you know, this new parent kind of ecstasy, as we would call it, is being described as to what God feels toward the people that is being described in this passage. And my basic uh, idea in this sermon is to try to bring out, you know, what, what are the circumstances through which this was written and how might this uh, call upon us to change? So I want to try to do that very briefly with you. And I'm not going to give you an outline. I'm just going to walk through it. Zephaniah is one of what we call the Old Testament minor prophets. And if you don't know what a minor prophet is, it's basically a book that's hard to read and really scary. Okay? <laughs> it's hard to read, and what you do understand, you're like, my goodness, what is going on here? It's really scary most of the time. That is especially true with Zephaniah. Okay? If you read through Zephaniah, you'll find that uh, the content of this is summarized by a theme that it runs throughout the scriptures that's called the day of the Lord. This idea uh, goes throughout the entirety of scripture. And let me read to you this little uh, excerpt from our prophet Zephaniah here. This is what's being said. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against 
the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither shall their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. Now, friends, that did not disappoint, did it? Right? Fright- this is, uh, in my opinion, this is perhaps some of the most frightening content in the whole of Scripture, and yet it's in the context of this teaching that we have the most breathtaking statement of how delighted God is in those of you who belong to him, okay? That, how, how do we put that together? What's going on there? Well, I'm going to try to answer that in just giving you uh, bri- just briefly a take on what's happening. Uh, so in the book of Zephaniah, it starts out, as prophets often do, uh, running through a list of peoples, people groups, nations uh, surrounding God's covenant people of Israel. And basically, God takes turns, right? Talks about uh, Philistia and says, you know, I'm going to judge you because of these reasons. Talks about Assyria. I'm going to judge you for these reasons. And, you know, no doubt the readers in Israel, as Zephaniah begins to prophesy, as they're starting to hear this language, you have to understand something. This language I read, as scary as it is, uh, folks in that day would not have uh, received it as you're probably feeling. You know what they would be doing for the first (laughs) two chapters? They'd be like, yes, <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to hurt those people who have been oppressing us, who have been robbing us, who have been uh, killing us. Yes, we can't wait. When does it start? I want the popcorn. I want box seats. This is the best news to ever happen. That's how they would have been feeling about it. Until chapter 3, because in chapter 3, Zephaniah turns from describing these nations, these enemies of Israel, and he says, you know, uh, Jerusalem, God's going to judge you, actually, because you have not listened to his voice. You have not heeded his correction. In fact, this is how it's put here. Um, He says, uh, I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But listen to what he says. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. And so even Israel, uh, you know, the, the mood would change quite extensively uh, as Israel's hearing this prophecy when it goes from chapter 2 to chapter 3. But how do we get to this statement in in verse 17? How do we get there? Well, what's happening is is that God is describing this very bleak picture. And if you have a hard time with what I read, have a hard time with understanding, you know, this seems like harsh and unjust and unfair. And, you know, does anyone actually believe this stuff anymore? Right? You You might be thinking that. I wrestle with thinking that sometime. How do we even process this? Well, the way you process this is you talk to those people who have suffered unspeakable things. Go talk to a victim. And when I say a victim, I mean someone who has suffered something that would properly be described as unspeakable. 
right? And you, no doubt you know, you, know, you know some of these folks, right? You know folks who were hurt as children by people that they trusted. You know folks who have been uh, slandered, who have been treated harshly, who have had things taken from them. I have to tell you that the way you feel about that is you hear someone's story, as it becomes personal to you, what's it do to you? Makes you, I hope, <laughs> makes you angry. It makes you furious that a human being would treat another human being in ways that are unspeakable. And friends, when you, when you feel that, as the, you hear a personal story, guess what? You're feeling the way God feels when people are likewise oppressed. Right? when his name is oppressed, as is so deeply, commonly the case. And so, you know, uh, Americans have a bit of a hard time understanding this teaching, but folks who live in war-torn places, folks who have been in wars, they actually have the opposite. They say, if God is not a God of, of justice, if he's not going to take care of oppression, then I, I really have no interest in this Christianity business. So this is where we are at. So God is dealing with this, but he then turns his gaze to his own people, and he begins to prophesy against them. But then the mood will change in the verses that I printed here. You see, what's happening is God is describing a kind of transformation. I want you to uh, understand this. Look in verse 11. He says, on that day, you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And then he will go on in verse 13 to say, uh, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And what's happening is, is that the, uh, the sins of Israel are being replaced by a kind of justice, a kind of righteousness. And look at the language at the, at the last sentence of verse 13. It says this, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of anything? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He makes me lie down. I, because you're with me, I'll fear no evil. See, what the prophet is saying here is that this passage that we often quote, in fact, ministers will basically always read this at pretty much every funeral, right? because it's, the, it's that material that just cuts through the darkest of moments, the darkest... Uh, pieces of grief and death and all that attends to it. We always go to Psalm 23, and what Zephaniah is doing here is he's saying, folks, God is about to accomplish this in your own experience. And he says that to a certain group of them. He then goes on in verse 20 to say, I will make you renowned and praised among all the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And so what he is doing is he's bringing out a promise to rebuild all that was lost. Right? He said, I will restore your fortunes. As this place had suffered devastation, he says, a time is coming where instead of shame, you will know glory. Now, how does it happen? How does this come about? And the word that I think summarizes this concept of transformation, the word that overarches all of Zephaniah's content, I might actually surprise you, goes along with some things that were said earlier. It's what I call a divine humility. 
okay? A divine humility. I think we see that more than uh, any other concept in this passage. Look with me uh, in verse 11. He says, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And then verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And friends, we find this actually as a prominent theme throughout Scripture. So for example, uh, in the book of James, he says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to say, therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Or the prophet Isaiah will similarly say, to this one will I look, he who is humble in spirit and trembles at my word. And if you're familiar with the account of where Satan comes from and who Satan is, kind of mysterious, but there's one thing that's not mysterious, and that is the essence of the satanic identity as rooted in pride, okay? That's who he is. In fact, uh, his temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden ultimately was rooted in pride. He said, you know, God gives you these laws so that you don't break free from him and don't, you know, so that you don't make a choice whereby you won't need him anymore. And if you follow what I'm advising you to do, you can live in such a way as you don't need him anymore. And we find, friends, that, uh, of course, they were persuaded by that argument. And in a similar way, I would suggest to you that there is no greater force in your life to hold you back from God's presence than pride. Right? Some of you here, you don't believe in this Christian stuff, but you're here anyway. Really happy about that. Right? The main, when I've t- spoken to folks who are really honest about this, they all will ultimately say the same thing. They'll say, you know, I have this problem, that problem, but ultimately, I can't accept submitting to a God who says, and then fill in the blank. It's different, you know, the, the law might be different with every person that they reject. In fact, one of my uh, close friends She said it this way. She said, you know, I would love to believe in Christianity because of the comfort that it affords you, right? When things aren't going well in your life and you have someone to pray to as the power to change things, I would absolutely love that. But I will not submit to this outside authority. I will not turn over my life as Christianity demands. And she was absolutely right. It, It does demand that. And so... We find in the scripture that this concept of pride and humility stick out as having unique power. Uh, Now, what is humility, I wonder? You know, I I misunderstood humility for a long time. I sort of thought humility was being quiet if you had skills to offer, right? You know, we were on an airplane yesterday, and pilot did a great job landing in yesterday's wind, which was blowing across the runway like this. Right, very hard to do uh, with those gusts yesterday, and we were sort of approaching sideways, and then she kicked the plane over, and we shook a lot, but we got here safely. Right? Um, if she was on uh, an airplane with an inexperienced pilot, and in yesterday's wind, and he said, "Look, I don't really have the skills to handle this landing. I don't know what I'm going to do." I-, I would really appreciate it if she did not stay quiet about her skills would really be grateful if she would say, you know, I actually have something to offer. And if she were to do that, there would be no contradiction to humility. You see, we often misunderstand humility as simply being quiet about uh, skills and abilities we may have. But let me read to you from the book of Philippians, 
what God says about humility. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or, com- or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let not each of you look to his own judgments, but also to the interest of others. You see, the Bible's idea of humility is that when humility becomes part of your experience, that the transformation that takes place shows up primarily not in what you do or don't say about yourself, but what you do and don't think, speak, and act concerning the value and the worth of others, right? When you're in the presence of a humble person, you know that you are because you feel so deeply cared for. You feel that this person was interested in your story, interested in knowing you and understanding you and seeing who you are. Right? That's the essence of humility, is looking out to the interests of others. And what the prophet says here is that in the midst of this overwhelming devastation that one day is coming upon the earth, that there will be a group of people who are transformed in such a way that they go from being self-centered, self-focused, self-obsessed, to becoming truly humble. Right? That's what's going to happen, and it's in connection with that transformation that we have this shocking material uh, that we looked at earlier in verse 17. So now, we ask ourselves this question, so you're saying, Pastor, that God is going to be really happy about me like the parents in the delivery room who've been praying for a child because I decide to go about changing the way I think? right? Okay, I'm going to work hard at that. Where do I sign up for the next class to learn how to do that, right? You might be thinking that, but you would be wrong because it's actually not the case. And we know that uh, because of verse 15. Look at what it says in here. It says this, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. You see, these folks uh, were not this way. He has cleared away your enemies. He's in your midst. He's drawn near, And what the prophet is envisioning is a transformation that is a result of experiencing profound grace and profound forgiveness, right? The Christian teaching is that when you truly begin to grasp verse 17 of this passage, when you find your fears and insecurities and crazy lives and worries comforted and quieted by the voice of God where he says, you know what? I am so delighted in you. Far more than you know. Far more than you realize. Far more than you understand. And it begins to quiet you and you begin to say, wow, I don't even begin to understand this. The way that you know that's happening in your life, there's one way that never lies and that is humility. Right? You show me an arrogant person, a person who's only interested in himself or herself, what, I can just assure you, this person has no understanding of verse 17, right? I'll tell you, I have very little understanding of verse 17, to be frank with you. As I think about these things, as I consider these things, uh, my thought goes to how impoverished I am with verse 17, and how I long to understand it in a deeper way. And the way that you know that it's clicking, so this passage would suggest, is with the resulting humility. 
It's interesting, uh, Jesus will play this out uh, quite extensively, and we've been actually looking at these passages uh, in, in the Gospels. We talked about his experience uh, with Simon the Pharisee. He goes into Simon's house. Simon's got it all together. Woman who probably was a prostitute comes in, and she is just pouring uh, expensive oil and perfume on Jesus' feet. She's wiping it with her hair. Simon is outraged. He's like, awkward. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are we doing this? This is really strange. And more than that, if you really were someone special, you would be horrified at the thought of a prostitute touching you in this way. What's wrong? You know, you can't be authentic. And of course, what Jesus will go on to say is he'll say, you know, Simon, this person has a love for me that you don't understand. She has a value for me, and that sounds awfully a lot like humility, doesn't it? That you do not know, because yes, she has many sins in her background, but I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. The one who loves much has been forgiven much. And friends, I'll tell you, this is why I believe that this concept of becoming reacquainted with God's grace is a key to genuine spiritual revival. You see, because our community, our congregation can only love Phoenixville as God intended if that love is genuine, a.k.a. if it is a direct result of understanding the depth of God's love for us. And I will tell you, friends, I want you to ask this question with me. I'm, I'm asking it. I want to invite you to asking it. What is holding you back today from truly loving others in this way? So I want you to take an inventory of that question. What's holding you back from loving like this, from responding to others like that? This woman said, I don't care you know, how embarrassed I am. I don't care what's happening. My heart is just pouring out an offering to the Lord that shows up in this way. I wonder what that might look like for you. What's holding back uh, your you're experiencing what this passage describes in this way. Well, friends, uh, what this passage is suggesting to us and what I would like to exhort you today, wherever you are in the spectrum, whether you believe as we do, whether you have believed for many years, or uh, whether you are just becoming acquainted with God's grace. Verse 15, it says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away his enemies. The King of Israel is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. Prophet Zephaniah may not have known it, but these words would ultimately take on new depth and new meaning as the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He lives among his people. He lives as the very essence of humility itself, fulfilling the words of this passage. And then he absorbs Darren Pesnell's judgments. He absorbs your judgments, those of you who have trusted in him. You know, and I wonder to make this a little bit more vivid for you. I wonder if you could make it personal this morning. I wonder if you could name what he's absorbed for you today. Let me give you some suggestions. The Lord Jesus comes. He suffers. He's rejected. He's crucified. He's buried. He rises again. And in that experience, he absorbed all of the judgment that was rightfully deserved by you for every time you have gossiped or slandered another person. Every time you have exaggerated a fact, he absorbed the judgment that's due to you when you mismanaged your money or when you lived self-centered lives. 
He absorbs the judgment of greed that we as Americans, I think, experience in ways we have not yet begun to even possibly understand. He absorbed your judgment for the last unkind word or thought that you experienced. He has taken your judgment for failing to be engaged in the plight of the poor and in the cause of justice for the oppressed. Or even more significantly, he has absorbed your judgment for your divorce or even for the abortion that you had. You see, the Lord Jesus has absorbed judgments for all of the sins of his people. All those times you have consumed pornography or sinned sexually, he has taken God's righteous judgment into his own being. And friends, when that begins to make sense, you will become transformed like is written in this passage. And friends, I want to tell you, we as a community need this transformation. I need it and you need it. If we are going to love our community boldly, if they are not going to become a project to us, but they are going to experience the powerful movement of God, it can only happen by these words becoming, going from abstract to high definition. That happens at this table. That happens at the cross. That happens when Christ goes from being an abstraction to you to a personal reality. I wonder if you could fill in your own articulation of what judgments Christ has taken from you. Do it in your mind. Do it today uh, as you reflect on who he is. And may that experience lead you to a rich and deep transformation. Let me pray for us.